Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Elhamdülillahi Rabbil alemin. Ve sallallahu ve sellem ala seyyidina Muhammed ve ala alihi ve sahbihi ve sellem. Allahümme salli ala seyyidina Muhammed. Salatin tuncina biha min cemiyel ahvali ve afatu taqdilana biha cemiyel hacatu tutahiruna biha min cemiyel seyyatu tarfa'una biha indeke ala derecatu tuballiguna biha aksal gayat min cemiyel khayrati fil hayati ve ba'dil memat. Allahümme salli ala seyyidina Muhammed. Tıbbil kulubi ve devaiha ve afiyetil abdani ve şifaiha ve nurul abusali ve diyaiha ve ala alihi ve sahbihi ve sellem. Ve salatu ve selamu aleyke ya seyyidi ya Resulullah. Ve salatu ve selamu aleyke. Ya Seyyidi Ya Rasulullah Salatu ve Salamu Aleyk Ya Seyyidi Ya Rasulullah We're on hadith number 33 33 And we need to finish And there's 40 So Bismillah Sayyidina Anas radiallahu reported The Thirty consecutive days and nights would pass, and there would be no food for me and Bilal that was suitable to eat, except for a small amount of food that Bilal kept hidden under his arm. So he's getting at is in the beginning of the message, the Prophet faced, of course, significant hardship. And generally speaking, you know, if you're going to be about something, there's usually going to be some level of hardship. Like it's. You know, I think that's part of a lot of these things. Like, do you have any skin in the game? People talk about a lot of things that are, you know, important to talk about or they're maybe relevant to talk about or whatever, but what kind of skin do you have in the game? And when it comes to our desire to practice Islam, our desire to learn about our religion, to understand what Allah and His Messenger want from us, at some level, you know, there has to be, we have to put in some work for that. And uh, it's, it's, you know... It, it's kind of contrary. Like, I'll, I'll give you an example. When I first became a Muslim, I was learning about Islam, and I had this understanding of like, uh, this understanding of like, people should make da'wah to you, you know? Like the Imam should come talk to me. It was a really twisted understanding. Like the Imam should come and talk to me. Uh, because like, I'm a young guy and I care about Dean and like I'm here in the masjid and he should come and find me and like that's the way of the Prophet to go and make the da'wah and stuff. <laughs> and, uh, and then I realized, you know, when we went to Egypt, <laughs> that that's, that's not the way that most people of learning are looking at the whole situation. I mean, yeah, some people, of course, they'll go out of their way just to be polite and talk to you and try to help you and stuff like that. But they're not looking at it like, uh, you know, like you're in charge. Our teacher, like our Arabic teacher used to always complain. He's like, you guys, all, you all come from America and you think just because you're paying for a class, you think, Zabun da'iman al haq You think that the, the customer is always, is always on the truth, you know? Or like, the, what, is the, what is the phrase in English? Customer is always right. Customer is always right. Zabun it's funny, I remember it in Arabic now and not in English. He's <laughs> like, no, it doesn't work that way. Like, I came here, and just because you're paying for a class doesn't mean you own me. Like, on the day of judgment, I'm going to ask you. He's like, I have a haq over you. My right over you is I teach you how to speak Arabic, and you make dua for me. And now when I come on the day of judgment, I'm not giving up my right. I was like, wow. So, mashallah, you know, he gets dua every day because <laughs> he scared us. <laughs> like, he's gonna come. He's gonna be like, "I taught you this. I taught you that." It's true. Like, you took someone who 
couldn't do anything and taught them how to speak a language. I guess it's an amazing uh, gift. And but he'd be like, the sheikh would come sometimes, like if we didn't do our homework. It's not easy, you know, like you go to school in America, even if you go to good, good schools, you're probably not actually used to studying. Most, like it's not really American culture to study. There's a handful of people who actually study, they'll study before exams and stuff like that, but it's not like a study culture. There's exceptions, of course, but the general culture is not to study. You go, we're like, we're sitting in a class, it's my wife and myself and the Arabic teacher. Five hours in class every single day, five days a week. Five hours in class, five days a week with three to five hours of homework. You think he can tell if you didn't do your homework? He's going to sit there and go through all of it with you and make sure like everything is done properly, right? So sometimes we come to class, he'll be like, did you do your homework? I'm like, no, we didn't do our homework. Manish, yeah. He's like, Manish, but you have to do it now. And you take a nap. Like we were sitting in the class, you just put it like, <laughs> take a nap. <laughs> like you got to do the homework. There's nothing I can do for you, right? Like this is... I, what I'm trying to get at is the Prophet وسلم, is saying, I faced fear, there was no one else who faced fear. I faced harm when no one else was facing harm. Like he he put it on the line, Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. You know? Uh, that's why I know like it's a little bit cold outside. Uh, for Southern California standards, it's a little bit cold outside. And it's probably gonna get colder, right? But alhamdulillah, it's Southern California, like it doesn't really get that cold. And alhamdulillah, this is like a really beautiful thing that we have. And uh, if we were to meet inside, then everyone would like have to wear masks and it'd be really weird and whatever. Like alhamdulillah, it's a blessing to be able to meet. So if it's cold, just bring extra layers. California people don't usually know. The way to warmth is layers. <laughs> right? Like anyone who's lived in the East Coast, Chicago, like the way to warmth is layers. It's not this big jacket. The big jacket doesn't help if you don't have layers. So bring layers. Inshallah, will be all right. Build character. 34. Anas ibn Malik radiallahu anhu reported, My final gaze upon the Messenger of Allah, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, was when he lifted the curtain from his door on a Monday. I gazed at his face and it looked like a page from the Quran. At the time, the people were behind Abu Bakr in prayer, and they nearly stirred in commotion. So he gestured to them that they should remain as Abu Bakr led them in prayer. He lowered the curtain and passed away later that day. So now we're end, like I, when I took these from the book, I took them in the order of the book. So when you get to the end of the book, you get to the death of the Prophet. So when we get to this part from here, pretty much all is related to the death of the Prophet. Allahumma salli wa sallim wa barik ala Sayyidina Muhammad. So Sayyidina Anas ibn Malik radiallahu anhu says, My final gaze on the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam was I saw his face on a Monday and it looked like a page from the Qur'an. Isn't that an interesting expression? Sometimes you wonder like, what did they see? You know? We've talked about this idea before of uh, actually, interestingly, I was looking up one of the definitions of tasawwuf recently. And one of the things that he said, usually when we talk about tasawwuf and spirituality and stuff, we talk about purification of the heart, right? He said, it's a knowledge by which you know the foundations that lead to purification of the heart, wasair and hawas. 
and the rest of the senses as well. And I thought that was really interesting. Like, okay, it's not just the heart, it's the other senses as well. And now I'm reading this and I'm thinking about, huh, you know, like, we perceive with more than our, our we've talked about before, like, we, we intellect and we understand and we perceive with more than just our senses and our mind. But our heart is part of that process. So if the heart is like really clear and really pure and really beautiful, what does it see? Does it see the same thing that other people see? Or do things look a little bit different? Because he's saying, I looked at the face of the Prophet and it looked like a page from the Qur'an. So like... And we know from the other narrations that the Prophet face was more beautiful and illuminated than the full moon on a clear night. So what was he seeing when he was looking at the, the page from the Qur'an? Like was he actually seeing light when he's looking at a page from the Qur'an? Because, and when he's looking at the face of the Prophet then he's seeing light as well. Like what is going on there? It's very interesting. And he says, we saw him, Abu Bakr was leading the people in prayer. And he started to show, he showed himself, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, his home is connected to the masjid, right? So the people started to, he had been in his home, he was sick, right? So he's in his home, people haven't seen him. So they notice that there's some movement at the door of the house of the Prophet They start to stir, and he gestured to them to like, just stay, finish your salah, pray with Sayyidina Abu Bakr And he lowered the curtain and he passed away later that day, Hadith number 35. Sayyidina Anas reported, Allahumma salli ala Sayyidina Muhammad. On the day the Messenger of God entered Medina, the entire city was engulfed in light. It's the same person, right? Last narration was who? Anas ibn Malik. Hmm? Next narration is Anas ibn Malik. So Anas, the same one saying, his face looked like a page from the Qur'an, is the same one who's saying, when he entered Medina, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, the entire city was engulfed in light. Should we go in a little bit? Let's go in a little bit while we're here. So, a lot of the scholars, they talk about this idea of the mulk and the malakut. The mulk and the malakut. The mulk is the physical realm. It's like we're here, we see each other, there's colors, there's light, we touch things. They're soft, they're hard, they're hot, they're cold, they're warm, whatever it might be, right? And then there's the malakut. And the malakut is like, you could say, kind of like the spiritual realm. It's also there. But we don't normally interact with it in ways that we can sense. Okay? But it's there. And so they say that like, for example, one of the things that happens sometimes with very righteous people, men and women, is that the veil between these two worlds, these two layers of existence, maybe we can say, is lifted. They see things. So when you say that there's an element at which the, the spiritual reality of the Prophet them is that he is nur. There's no doubt about this. The spiritual reality of the Prophet is that he's light, he's nur. Maybe someone doesn't believe in the Prophet they don't see any of that light. 
And maybe you have people like Enes who fully believe in the Prophet and they're like very beautiful, amazing people and all they see is that light. There's some, some, something, this veil, they say it's a veil, it's as thin as a veil, that sometimes it's lifted. Sometimes people get a glimpse of it, whatever it might be. I was reading a story of... Uh, you know, just to give some some of these stories, like sometimes you hear these things, you're like, I don't know, are those just like the people that existed before we had factories and mass production and stuff like that? No, actually, they're not. Um, I was just reading this morning a story about uh, Sheikh Saleh Saleh Jafari, radiallahu anhu, rahimahullah, who was the Imam of Al Azhar, like the Masjid, for a significant period of time. He died relatively recently forget exactly the date but like he was born in 1910 I think it was so like you know he died in the late 1900s right so it's, he there was a story he's telling it himself it's not like uh, you know like it's, this is our lifetime he's telling the story himself that there was a sheikh that was uh, taught hadith so he went to visit the sheikh and in his heart he had the intention that I'm going to ask, I want to go to him and I want to visit him. I want to ask him if I can be the one who reads the hadith in his class. So, for example, like a lot of times when the shiuch are teaching, right now we have this 40 hadith collection, right? Usually, because, you know, usually the sheikh wouldn't be the one who reads the hadith. One of the students would read the hadith or something, and you might have someone who has that job, or even if it's a text in fiqh, if it's a text in whatever. The student will read the text and the sheikh will give commentary. So he said, I had the intention to go visit the sheikh to ask him if I can be the one that reads the hadith in his gatherings. He's like, so I went in, I had never met him before. We sat down and I sat down and he came out and he said salam and he looked at me and he said, inshallah, you're going to be the one who reads the hadith in my gathering this year. And he was like, alhamdulillah. <laughs> You explain it to me. I don't know. Point is, there's a mulk and there's a malakut. Come back to the hadith. On the day the Messenger of God, sallallahu alaihi wasallam, entered Medina, the entire city was engulfed in light. This is not necessarily like purely metaphor. This is my point. It's not necessarily purely metaphor. Um, There's a hadith, for example, like that. I think it was Sayyida Aisha radiallahu anha. She dropped something. It was nighttime. It was dark. She dropped something, and she was looking for it. And the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam turned in her direction, and there was light, and she found it. Allahu alam. But like to to negate this stuff, you're negating a lot of the religion. On the day the entire city was engulfed in light. On the day he passed away, sallallahu alaihi wasallam, the entire city was enveloped in darkness. Are you going to say like, oh, but the metaphorical meaning makes perfect sense, right? Why does the metaphorical meaning make perfect sense? Because the physical reality of the idea of darkness, like I'm going through, I feel really dark. Someone says like, I feel really dark or I feel really light. And it's because they're having a physical experience that is mirrored in the spiritual. That's why the sen- it makes so much sense. Like the statement makes so much sense. Anyways, whatever. You're looking at me like I'm crazy, so we're just going to keep going. No sooner had we dusted the earth of his burial, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, from our hands, than we rebuked our hearts. 
No sooner had we dusted the earth of his burial from our hands than we rebuked our hearts. Means what? What does it mean? It means they, they put him in the ground, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, and they could immediately feel that their hearts were different. This is also like, what is the realm of the heart? What is the realm of the soul? The realm of the soul is the metaphysical, it's the malakut, it's not the mulk. Right? So, they said, we put him in the ground, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, we covered the earth and we, we rebuked our hearts. Like we could feel it immediately. We were not in his presence anymore. In the same way, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Of course, he's still in Medina. They still visit him. They still say salam to him, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Hadith number 36. Tamam. Salam. Is it salam? Make sure I get this right. Salam. Salim ibn Ubaid radiallahu anhu reported During the illness of the Messenger of God sallallahu alayhi wa sallam During his illness, the Messenger of God sallallahu alayhi wa sallam lost his consciousness When he came to, he said, the time for prayer has arrived They said yes He said, have Bilal give the call to prayer and have Abu Bakr lead the people in prayer Then he lost consciousness again when he came to, he said, the time for prayer has arrived. Question. It's a question, right? They said, yes. He said, have Bilal give the call to prayer and have Abu Bakr lead the people in prayer. Sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Small side point. Bilal radiallahu an is he, so you, the story of the Adhan, right? That the, the Christians and the Jews, they had people to call, they had a way to call people to prayer. And the Muslims now in Medina, they built the masjid. They don't know how to call people to the prayer. So they're giving different ideas and stuff. And then uh, there was a dream. Two people had a dream of the Adhan. They came to the Prophet them. They told him the dream. Prophet them told them what? It's a very important community lesson too. Prophet them told them what? Told them, call Bilal, huwa inda sultan. Just a tough one. <laughs> like imagine, imagine you have a dream, you see that this is the adhan, this is how we're going to call people to the masjid. It hasn't been established yet. This is how you're going to call people to the masjid, right? You had the best idea, like you had a really good idea. Awesome idea, like for the community or whatever. And you really thought you were going to be the one to be in charge. <laughs> right? <laughs> the Prophet them, here's the adhan, he says that's what we're going to do. Call Bilal, his voice is more beautiful. Literally, like, call Bilal, his voice is more beautiful. He's going to be the one who can teach him it. He's going to be the one who calls people to prayer. It's really important, right? Like, if it's about the collective, then it's not about the individual. Like, the individual matters, of course. Sometimes we take this to an extreme the other way. Like, you know, you don't matter at all because it the group is what matters and, like, just completely like negate the humanity of human, singular human beings, right? It's not the point also. But the thing is, is that sometimes someone else is better for the job. Same thing happened when the Prophet ﷺ was building the masjid. There was a particular companion who was really, he was known for making like a really good compound that holds the materials together. They told him, get so-and-so, he's the one that needs to make this, right? Like he has that, 
special knowledge. We need to use that. And he knew that because he knew his people. Allah forgive us. <coughs> Ideally, we all know each other like in a lot of detail. So you say, okay, this person, they're the one to do that. This person is the one to do that. Of course, when you don't have like 70 hour work weeks and one hour commutes and two income economies and all of these other things makes things a lot more difficult, right? Mass transportation, mass communication, all types of stuff. Like we said last time, the Prophet them and his people, they live like one of them lives right there at the corner of the field and the other one lives at the penalty <laughs> at 18 yard, what is it? 18 yard? Yes. 18 yard line. The other one lives at the half line. Someone else lives right here and the masjid's like the basketball court. So in the marketplace is like the gym. So everyone's going to see each other, right? Makes a big difference. Anyways, call Bilal. He has a more beautiful voice. So the Prophet is saying, Bilal gives the call, Abu Bakr leads the prayer. He loses consciousness again. Says it again. Aisha radiallahu anha says, My father is a sensitive man. If he stands in that position, he will be overcome with tears. He will be unable. If only you would order someone else. Then the Prophet lost consciousness again. When he came to, he said, Have Bilal give the call to prayer. And have Abu Bakr lead the people in prayer. You women are indeed the female companions of Yusuf. Remember last time we came across something like this and I was telling you like, just be careful how you read a statement of the Prophet You can hear something, you can read it a lot of different ways. Like you can read it as this really aggressive, harsh comment, which in the case of the Prophet and say to Aisha, we really shouldn't read it that way. Or you can read it as something that's like more playful. He's kind of like, you know, saying something to her. But at the same time, he's he's being very firm on this point that um, the Bilal should give the call to prayer and Abu Bakr radiallahu anh should lead the prayer. This indicates to us, and this is the standard position of Sunni Islam. Obviously, there's a big difference of opinion on this between Sunnis and Shia. But the standard position of Sunni Islam is that the Prophet ﷺ was doing this on purpose. That leading the prayer is not just, you know, you get someone to lead the prayer. One of them is more knowledgeable. One of them recites well. One of the, We have all of these companions. Many of them are scholars. Abu Bakr, Omar, Uthman, Ali, Abdullah bin Mas'ud, Ubay bin Ka'ab, scholars of the Qur'an, so on and so forth. All of them could read. Um, all of them could read. All of them could lead the Salat. And the Prophet ﷺ is saying specifically, Abu Bakr should lead the Salat. So this is one of the things that we understood from it that Abu Bakr is the one who this is not indicative of only the prayer. This is the position of the Prophet them, and he's the one that's going to be assuming the position of the Prophet them after his death in terms of temporal and at some level spiritual leadership. Not in the same way as the Prophet them, but he is going to decide. People have a difference of opinion. How should we do this? He's going to be the one who decides. <laughs> Bilal was asked to give the call for prayer, which he did, and Abu Bakr was asked to lead the people in prayer. Then the Messenger of God experienced some relief. He said, go find someone I can lean on. Barira and another person came, and he leaned on them. So he said, like, he's going to walk out. He's going to go out. So find someone I can lean on. When Abu Bakr saw him, he began to move back from his position. But the Prophet ﷺ gestured to him to remain. 
He remained until Abu Bakr completed his prayer. Shortly thereafter, the soul of the Messenger of God was taken. Sayyidina Umar said, By God, if I hear anyone say that the soul of the Messenger of God has been taken, I will strike him down with my sword. Couldn't handle it, right? In, in modern stuff, what you, this is like, uh, like in the moment of trauma, the response sometimes is not exactly like what it should be, right? And this is a great, great person, right? This is Sayyidina Umar. And of course, this is the greatest trauma, the greatest trauma. The Prophet said that. The greatest trauma is his death, Nothing will afflict the Ummah in as more severe a way as the death of the Prophet So he's shook up by this. And he says, anyone who says that, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kill him. The people were unlettered and never had a Prophet among them before him. So they restrained their tongues. Like many of the people were around, like I said before also, not all of the companions were scholars. You don't have to be a scholar to be a great person. It's also an important thing to remember. You don't have to be a scholar to be a great person. To be a great person, you have to be a great person. Right? Like it's, it's not... There's many scholars who are corrupt. There's many great people who are not scholars. And then there's great, great people who are great people and they're scholars. It's beautiful. But you don't have to be. So many of the companions, they were just really beautiful, wonderful people. But they're not like... And they look to the Prophet for guidance. The Prophet's gone. Now Omar is saying this. And they're like, okay, we just won't say anything. We'll restrain our tongues. <clears throat> they said, O Salim, go to the companion of the Messenger of God and tell him to come. They also understand the situation, right? <laughs> so they didn't say anything, but they told Salim. They said, go to, the, go to the companion of the Messenger of God, which is who? Anyone? Who are they referring to? Huh? I can't hear you. Kids are louder than you. Abu Bakr. They said, go to the companion of the Messenger of God, Abu Bakr, and like bring him, right? Tell him to come. Salim said, I went to Abu Bakr and he was in the mosque. I approached him and was weeping out of shock. I mean, think of the, think of the situation, right? All of this is going down. He's crying, he's in shock. He says, I came to Abu Bakr, I was weeping out of shock. When he saw me, he asked, Has the blessed soul of the Messenger of God been taken? He understood immediately. Has the blessed soul of the Messenger of God been taken? I replied, He said, I replied, Omar has said, If I hear anyone say that the blessed soul of the Messenger of God has been taken, I will strike him down with my sword. He, Abu Bakr, said to me, Let's go. So we went, and when we arrived, the people had gone in to see the Messenger of God. So he said, O people, make space for me. They made space for him, and he came forward, leaned down, and touched the Prophet Then he recited, Surely you will die, and surely they will die. Look at immediately. Immediately he knew the verse from the Qur'an that applies. SubhanAllah. Surely he, you will die, and surely they will die. Then they said, O companion of the Messenger of God, was the soul of the Messenger of God taken? He replied, Yes. They knew that he spoke the truth. They said, O companion of the Messenger of God, should the Messenger of God be prayed over? Yes, he said. How, they asked. He said, a group should come and utter the takbir, send prayers, supplicate, and leave, after which another group should come and utter the takbir, send prayers, and supplicate, and leave, and another group, and another group, till all of the people have prayed on the Prophet 
They said, O companion of the Messenger of God, should the Messenger of God be buried? Yes, he replied. Where, they asked. He replied, in the place where God took his soul, for God did not take his soul except in a pure place. They knew that he spoke the truth. Then he ordered them to give way for the family of his father to wash him. The immigrants assembled to consult one another. They said, Come with us and let us go to our brothers from the helpers. Let us include them in this matter. So they realized very quickly the Prophet has passed. And we didn't really have like a very clear protocol or decision on who's going to be in charge. They understood Abu Bakr was leading the prayer and so on and so forth. But they know, it's a very, again, important community point, that someone has to be in charge. Someone has to be in charge. Nobody's in charge. Everything is chaos. So, they, so, the, so the immigrants, the muhajirun, they said, let's go to the Ansar and let's talk to them about this. We need to figure it out. This is, of course, not the full story. It's just a piece. Let us include them in this matter. The Ansar said, let there be a leader from us and a leader from you. Umar ibn Khattab said, but who has the likes of these three? The second of the two when they were, with, they were in the cave, when he said to his companion, grieve not, God is with us. Umar also knew which verse to use. He quoted the verse about when the Prophet ﷺ and Abu Bakr were in the cave during the Hijrah. So he said, who has the rank of this person who Allah said that when these Thaniyathnain, they're together? When Allah told him, when he told his companion, don't be worried, Allah is with us. Who are those two? Then he extended his hand and he pledged allegiance to Abu Bakr. Then the people pledged their allegiance to him, and it was a fine and beautiful pledge. Hadith number 37. Abdullah bin Abbas narrated that he heard the Messenger of God say, by the way, this whole radiallahu an and stuff, notice especially for people who don't speak Arabic, there's a lot of confusion around it. So, very quick, simple Arabic lesson. Radiallahu an, who refers to a singular male. Okay, singular male. An who. So you would say it for like Abdullah ibn Mas'ud. Abdullah ibn Mas'ud. Abdullah the son of Mas'ud, you would say radiallahu an, who. If you're talking about a woman, Aisha, for example, Sayyidah Aisha, you would say, Radiallahu an ha. An ha. The ha has an alif. The first one's just ha. Second one's ha with alif. Radiallahu an ha. Because she's a female. Allah be pleased with her. And if you're talking about someone like uh, Abdullah bin Abbas, where Abdullah is a Sahabi and Abbas is a Sahabi, his father. Right? So you say, Radiallahu an huma. Huma. Huma is for two. Anyways, just in case you want to do that. If you're not sure about it, there's a really easy solution. Use English. <laughs> May Allah be pleased with him. May Allah be pleased with her. May Allah be pleased with them. May Allah be pleased with all of them. It's all good. Alhamdulillah. Aisha asked, Radiallahu an ha. No, I didn't get there yet. Abdullah bin Abbas narrated that he heard the Messenger of God say, Whoever of my ummah has two young children die before him, God will admit him into paradise on account of them. Aisha asked, What about someone from your ummah who has one young child die before him? 
He said, including the one who loses a single young child, oh, you have, oh, you given enabling grace. Ayuhal muwafaqa. It's a beautiful term. Ayuhal muwafaqa. You know, like you say, you tell someone to have tawfiq. May you have tawfiq. May you have, may you be muwafaq. So she asks this question. He calls her muwafaqa. Like, this is a good question you asked. Think about it. All of the people who had one child die, they're included now in this because of her question. So this is a muwafaqa question. He said, including the one who loses a single child, oh, you given enabling grace. She asked, what about someone from your ummah who does not have a young child? You know, let's get everyone in. He said, in that case, I shall be the intercession for my ummah. They will not suffer a loss as great as mine. Sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Does this mean intercession for my ummah? They will not suffer a loss as great as mine. What happens when a person loses a child, like a premature child? The premature child <coughs> is in the hadana of Sayyidina Ibrahim, salam, first and foremost. In the interim period, they're in the hadana is used like in modern Arabic. They use it for like a, what is it? Like a preschool, right? Like uh, preschool, they're they're in the care of Sayyidina Ibrahim. All of these children, Muslims and non-Muslims, by the way, because if you're a non-Muslim and you die before the age of maturity, you die before the age of being accountable. So all of the, all of the children who died, they're in the hadana, they're in the the care of Sayyidina Ibrahim, salam, Sayyida Sara. And then when the day of judgment happens and the paradise is there. Then the child is given, you know, they're told you can go to paradise. Paradise, so here you can go to paradise. And the children, they wait at the gates of paradise and they say, I'm not going until my parents come. And then their parents are brought and they enter paradise. <clears throat> so this is their intercession. They interceded on behalf of their parents, right? Their parents were whatever their situation was. They said, I'm not going to paradise. I'm not going until my parents come. So they pulled their parents to paradise. The Shaheed has intercession. The Hafiz has intercession, right? The one who memorizes the Quran. The one who memorizes the Quran, their parents are, are crowned with crowns of light on the day of judgment. It's really beautiful. So normally if one child dies, two children die, they're going to intercede for their parents. So he said, what about the one who doesn't have a child who dies? And the Prophet says that I'll be the one who does that for them. That's, that's heavy. Sometimes you got to sit with it a little bit and like really think about it. He said, I'm going to be the one that does it for them. This, 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 uh, this ihsas, this ihsas doesn't feel right when you translate it, but like this, this feeling, this sense, this concern the Prophet had for his ummah. The narrations about the great intercession of the Prophet it's, it's the same concept that all of the other people they're running around, they say, nafsi, nafsi, myself, myself, uh, or you could say, selfie, selfie. And then the Prophet them is saying, Ummati, 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 my, my, my Ummah, my people. 
His concern is with his people. Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. And you see this sometimes in like the great people from the Ummah of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. You see this concern with them. And the story, you know, that always comes to mind, and I've told it here before, but maybe some people haven't heard it, or maybe we forgot. I know I need to be reminded of it. it is the story of uh, uh, Habib Abdul Qadir al-Saqqaf, who again was recent, like he died recently. You can find a picture online of uh, Dr. Omar sitting with him when Dr. Omar was young. It's a really amazing picture. You know, Habib Abdul Qadir sitting there, he's like this majestic sheikh, right? He's like powerful. You can feel he's powerful. And he's sitting on the chair, and then Dr. Omar is sitting right next to him, and he's like young. He has a really long brown beard. It's a really amazing picture, subhanAllah. They said about him that one time he was, um, you know, speaking somewhere or whatever. People were trying to talk to him afterwards. You often see this quality with Imam Zaid too. The first half of what I'm about to say. Imam Zaid, you see it too sometimes. Imam Zaid, you'll see, like, you'll be at the event, gathering after the event. It's like an hour later, he's still sitting there talking to people. As long as people are pulling him and saying, Sheikh, can I talk to you? He won't leave. It's like, he's not a young man, you know? People get tired. People are traveling. He's usually traveling on top of it. People come, he won't, he just sit down, keep listening, keep listening. So Habib Abdul Qadir gave this talk. People were walking with him. They walked back to the car. They come to the car. They want to walk him to the car. He gets in the car. And, you know, the person closes the door. And they're talking to him through the window and having the conversation. Whatever the conversation finishes, finally they go and they leave. And they leave and they're driving away for a little while, like out beyond the place. And he tells the driver, he says, could you uh, pull over the car? He's like, okay. He pulls over the car. He's like, can you come and open my door? So he comes and he opens his door and he finds that the sheikh's hand was in the door. His hand was in the door. He's like, sheikh, how come you didn't say anything? You know, like all the time your hand is smashed in the door. How come you didn't say anything? And he said, who, who am I to break the heart of someone from the ummah of the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam? Like they came and they clo- they walked me to the car, they closed the door. How, how am I going to say I'm going to break their heart? They came, they wanted to do this thing. If I say it to them, it's going to hurt them. So I, you know, just waited until he opened the door. I shall be the intercession for my ummah. They will not suffer a loss greater than mine. As great as mine. Sallallahu alayhi wa Hadith number 38. Awesome ibn Kulayb reported. My father narrated to me that he heard Abu Huraira say, the Messenger of God وسلم, said, Whosoever sees me in a dream has certainly seen me, for Satan cannot take my form. My father said, I related this to Ibn Abbas, and I said to him, I dreamt of him, meaning the Prophet وسلم, and then I remembered Hassan ibn Ali, and said, he resembles him. And Ibn Abbas replied, Indeed he does. Indeed he does. So the grandson of the Prophet ﷺ resembled the Prophet ﷺ. But the madmoon of the hadith, the major point of the hadith, so now the hadith up to this point lead to the death of the Prophet ﷺ, right? 
So what comes after the death of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam? When we covered it is the chapter on seeing the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam in your dreams. Seeing the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam in your dreams. This is a real thing. Molana, Ustad Fuad was over recently. And I forget why, you know. Pulled out some book. And then, uh, looking at this book, Bahjatim Nufus. It's a beautiful book. If you can read Arabic, Bahjatim Nufus of Ibn Abi Jamrah. It's commentary on. Uh, uh, commentary on his abridgment of Sahih al-Bukhari so Somehow I opened to the back of the book Actually that's what it was We were talking about some issue about dreams So I was like I know there's a section in one of the books on dreams Like sitting there trying to find it You know <laughs> Cutting down the rabbit hole Like flipping through all these books And then finally I was like I think it's in Bukhari So then I, I, I went to this text And I, you know I'm looking in the back Flip to the back of the text because I remember that this chapter on dreams is in the end of the book. And I see this appendix I never saw in the book before. The appendix says, On all of the incidences where I saw the Prophet them in a dream while I was in the course of writing this text. <laughs> I was like, ooh, <laughs> this sounds like fun, you know. I didn't sit down and read it yet. I only read one or two, but there's 70. You know, there's 70. 70 and he says, like, so this happened. Then I went to sleep and I saw this dream. The Prophet them said this and this and this. It's amazing. SubhanAllah. Hadith number 39. Muhammad ibn Ali reported, I heard my father say, these last two are not, um, in a sense, they're shaman, but they're not, in a sense, also. Anyways, they're, they're from the text. Uh, I heard my father say, Abdullah ibn Mubarak said, if you are, ti- if you are tried and being a judge, then follow the sacred reports. Follow the athar. Follow the sacred reports. If you are tried with being a judge, then follow the sacred reports. It's interesting he says that. Abdullah ibn Mubarak was one of the great students of Abu Hanifa. Abu Hanifa basically died because he refused to be a judge. He refused. Uh, he was a very, very intelligent man. He had all these tricks, in a sense. Like they came to him, they're like, we want you to be the head judge. And he was like, la asluh. La asluh. Which means, I'm not qualified for the job. Right? <laughs> so, so the guy said, you lied. You're a liar, you know? And he said, if I'm a liar, then I'm not qualified for the job. <laughs> And if I spoke the truth, then I'm not qualified for the job. <laughs> he had all these, like, so many stories of Abu Hanifa like that. Like, he knew exactly, how do I answer this thing? How do I... He said, he didn't take the job, so they imprisoned him. Eventually, they say that he died of being poisoned. Uh, anyway, so his student, Abdullah ibn Mubarak, is saying, if you're tried with being a judge, then follow the sacred reports, the athar. Follow the sacred reports. The athar are the narrations regarding the Prophet and the generations after him. Look look at the wisdom of the Prophet, of the Sahaba, of the Tabi'un. Take all of that wisdom and use all of that to judge in whatever case that you're judging. And hadith number 40, 
Muhammad ibn Sirin reported, these hadith traditions constitute your religion. هذا الحديث دين فانظروا عمن تأخذون دينكم These hadith traditions constitute your religion so consider carefully who you take your religion from So consider carefully who you take your religion from This is what ends the collection of the Shama'an It's interesting I think that it's interesting The collection of the Shama'an gives us all of the details of how the Prophet ﷺ was you know, as you saw, how do we? How did he deal with people? How did he speak to people? So on and so forth. They give us, in a sense, a glimpse of what the lived, embodied religion of the Prophet ﷺ was. And then, when you come to the end, he says, "These traditions are your religion. So look at who you take your religion from. Look at who you take your religion from." If I'm not mistaken, Muhammad ibn Sirin was saying this. So first of all, just to give some context, Muhammad ibn Sirin is from the Imams of the Tabi'een. He's from the great Imams of the Tabi'een, the generation after the Sahaba, generation who met the Sahaba, as were his two sisters, Hafsa and I want to say Maryam. Um, I think he was the one who his students were going on Hajj or Umrah. And he told them, when you go there, you're going to find an Qasim ibn Muhammad ibn Abi Bakr, the grandson of Abu Bakr radiallahu So when you find an Qasim, watch him. And then come back to me and tell me about the way that he would carry himself, the clothes that he would wear. Not like, like give me the details about how he was, how he was radiallahu and bring that back to me. This is a great imam. Why is he saying this about... And Qasim ibn Muhammad Because he was raised in the prophetic household He was raised by Sayyidah Aisha radiallahu anha If I'm not mistaken In that, in that realm And in Hassan al-Basri And he was also raised in the house There was stuff going on uh, These people were uh, He wanted to see like Okay, there's, so there's something there Beyond the narration So what's important This is what I'm trying to get at And the narration at the end is telling you There's something there beyond the narration and you have to get it. And you have to look for it. It's not sufficient to just have the knowledge. You have to see people who show you what that knowledge is supposed to look like. That's the sunnah of the Prophet And this is why people would travel great distances to learn from these people. It wasn't like, you know, you could find the book. Anyone can find the book. Again, to go to Sheikh Saleh al-Jafari, one of the stories that he said was that he was in his village and there were righteous, knowledgeable people in his village and he was learning and stuff. But it was a village still. And someone brought a copy of Imam al nawawis commentary on Sahih Muslim. So he borrowed it from them and he started reading it. He was going to teach himself. He's like, I'm going to read it. I'm going to learn myself. And then he saw a Sheikh in the dream, in a dream. And the Sheikh told him, the Shaykh was going to Al-Azhar And he started to talk to him And the Shaykh told him The knowledge is not taken from the books It's taken from the hearts of the people of knowledge It's not taken from the books It's taken from the hearts And he really like emphasized it to him And that's when Shaykh Saleh decided Okay, I'm going to go to Azhar When he got to Azhar He found another Shaykh Teaching the commentary on Sahih Muslim 
in Al-Azhar. And he's like, and I stayed with him and I learned from him. You have to, it has to be. There was a quote I saw recently. It said that your sheikh is not the one who you semi'ta minhum. Your sheikh is the one akhadta minhum. Your sheikh is not the one who you heard from them. Your sheikh is the one you took from. You took from. The Prophet ﷺ was their sheikh, not just because they heard from him, because they took from him. It's interesting. They took from the wellspring of the Prophet ﷺ. And every generation afterwards tried to take from the wellspring of the Prophet ﷺ. That's like the, the essence of the thing and underneath it all. So consider carefully. What did I tell you when we read the full Shema'in? And when we're reading this one, we say the same thing. One of the great benefits of studying the life of the Prophet is that there is no teacher who's greater than the Prophet. And knowing the Prophet gives the person the standard by which to understand everything else. It's your protection. There's all kinds of people that will be in all kinds of positions. There's all kinds of people that will say all kinds of things. The protection is, you go back to the hadith of the Prophet you see how he was. And the more you, the more we understand the lives of the righteous people. That's why also we talk about the lives of the righteous people a lot. Because it gives us a standard. That, okay, this is what I'm looking for. And it's beyond smoke and mirrors, you know. It's not just like... Uh, you notice from all of this It's not about the external things The external things are there It's about what's actually there underneath You know, may Allah not make us people of show May make us people of sincerity People of true reverence, true deen And may He give us people in our lives who allow us to really taste the way of the Prophet Because, you know, Laysan Khabaru Kal Mu'ayana is a hadith attributed to the Prophet with this meaning. Laysan Khabaru Kal Mu'ayana means in English uh, that, like, it, it means that being told something is not like seeing something. Being told something is not like seeing something. And sometimes there's people, you meet them, this is a good thing, if you know the sunnah too, then you know it when you see it. And you can be like, ah, oh, that was it. SubhanAllah, it clicks right there. Like, ah, oh, the hadith, I just understood the hadith. Now it really makes sense. SubhanAllah. Yes, SubhanAllah, yeah. Sayyidina Muhammad. Any questions? Yalla, Bismillah. You had mentioned that one. Essentially, essentially. Um, so the question is, <coughs> this idea of the dimming, dimming of the light when the Prophet them died, and uh, she was mentioning that she's heard a similar thing about when the awliya pass away. We're gonna have to talk about the awliya for a second because I had a conversation this week that made me feel like we need to talk about it. Um, it was a good conversation. Alhamdulillah. 
that we've heard a similar thing when the awliya pass away, there's a light that is lost. But do are we promised to have people like that until the end of time? I mean, like the end, 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 everything is, you know, it's all hasbunallah wa ni'amun rakeel. But before that, I mean, the Prophet said that there will be upright, righteous people who carry this religion in every generation. <coughs> it may be less. It's true. Especially when times become very difficult. Um, and we talked about this a little bit in Imam al-Dardir's paper on the qualities of a true sheikh. Um, they may become less. But... But they do not disappear. Um, one of the things that Ibn Ajiba says about the tafsir in Surah Al Waqi'ah, I don't remember the verses, but um, the one that says, like, Thullatun min al this verse it says there was a good chunk of them in the beginning and there's only a few there's few in the later period and so someone might ask like well how is that like how is that fair to us who come later right and one of the things that he said actually was that there may come a time where the, the very righteous people are fewer but in a sense they're actually greater because they're in a time that's different than the time of the people before. So maybe you're in a time where like you live in a city and there's like a thousand bona fide awliya in the city, you know, <laughs> to use a term, but we're going to have to talk about it. But, <clears throat> and they're all really great and they're really amazing. And then you come to a time where there's like one of them in the city. Like how great is that person? Even if they're on the same level Theoretically, they're not on the same level practically because like the time is different, the space is different. It's a whole different situation. So they will be there, inshallah. May Allah help us, you know, may Allah give us the gift of knowing them. They're, they're in the masajid, they're in the places, they're in their homes, nobody talks to them. You know, um, Allah help us. But um, the awliya, the awliya. So someone was talking to me about this, you know, idea of translating a wali as a saint and how they don't like it. I think they kind of convinced me, but that's not the point. The point is to use uh, the word wali and the, the, word, the concept of the awliya. The awliya are part of Islam. Like this is not, it's not really from the category of things like I can choose to believe in this or I can choose to not believe in this. You can choose to believe or not believe that a particular person is from the awliya. The awliya are who? Essentially, they're people who are very close to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. They're, love, they're beloved to Allah. So much so that like a lot of their affairs are taken care of by Allah. When they make dua, their dua is answered. When they ask things for you, their dua is answered, so on and so forth. That's one of the big signs. And... 
probably they're not going to say that they're one of those people. Um, they're not going to be arrogant. They're not going to like have a pin that says I'm from the Oliya or something like that. Uh, but the sign is that they do not disobey Allah and they have reverence for Allah. They have love for the Prophet them. They have love for the righteous people. When they pray, their du'as are answered, so on and so forth. Um, and <clears throat> those those people are called, someone like that is a wali. In plural, they're awliya. Imam al-Tahawi in his Aqidah book says that the miracles of the awliya are true. That karamat and awliya are true. In his book on the basic fundamentals of belief, like this is a matter of belief, you have to believe in it. Again, particular individuals, you don't have to believe. Someone tells you, oh, this person's a great wali Allah, and you're like, okay, and then you go and they're like, you're like, okay, mashallah, the lecture was like really cool, the gathering was nice, whatever, and then everyone leaves and like, he's like smoking a cigarette out by his car or something. I don't know. <laughs> or like, I don't know, any number of random things that people might do, you know? like okay I mean they might be a good person I'm not going to judge them it's not the point the point is not to judge people but like if they're in that camp I'm going to expect them to not be doing that kind of stuff you know a person's a great wali and then like you get to know them and you realize that they're like really bad to their wife like mm. they might be from awliya as shaitan <laughs> they might be from awliya as shaitan which is also real. So, yeah. Is that a real thing? And is that the same word used? I'm same listening. word, yeah. Really? Yeah. Human agents. Yeah. Like in the sense that they're basically doing the work of shaitan. Right? Like someone, let's, let's be honest. You have, like, forget sheikhs that make mistakes and stuff. You have sheikhs that are just like straight up corrupt people. Right? Like they, they do it as a means to make money, to, to, to lord over people, to take things from people, to, uh, uh, to make a bunch of money for like helping them with jinn and stuff like that. These people are only a shaitan. They're doing the work of shaitan. They're ruining religion. They're actually the worst people. The worst thing, maybe even worse than shaitan is the, wor- is the fake sheikh. They're up there in the rank of like really problematic things. Um, because the linguistic meaning of the word is just someone who's like the believers are awliya to each other the men and women the verse in the Quran that the men and women believers are awliya to one another they support one another they ally they're allies so one of the simple translations is to translate it as an ally so yeah there's people who are, they've allied themselves with shaitan and uh, you know na'udhu billahi minhu this is why you have things like this. This is why you have things like this. Put your armor on. Read it every day. Go out and fight. It's all good. Imam Nawawi. There's an amazing story of Imam Nawawi, by the way. Nobody was... Uh, I'll tell it quickly. Uh, Babers. Sultan Babers. Anyone know him? Battle of Angelut. Like, he's a big figure, right? Like, they beat the Crusaders. It's a big deal. In Damascus, Imam Anuwi wasn't happy with him. Because he wanted to put a tax on his people to fund all of these wars and stuff. And the other shiuch were giving the fatwa. And he came to Nuwi and he was like, I need your fatwa. He's like, you're not. He's like, okay. 
I heard you have a bunch of slaves and they all have money. If you go and you free all of your slaves and all of this money that you spend and you do all this stuff, all of this money that you have that you waste, if you give all of it for the cause, then I'll give you your fatwa. Nobody was free. Like, he just beat the crusaders. Like, this is a big deal. You know, like, he's a huge person. No, this is hot. You're not getting the fatwa. And he got really mad at him and he was like, you have to go, whatever, you know, leave Damascus. So he was like, okay, I'm leaving Damascus. And he got upset and uh, Babers later on wrote him a letter and he was like, you know, Noe, can you come back to Damascus? He's like, I'm not coming back to Damascus until Babers is dead. And shortly afterwards he died. Imam Noe came back to Damascus. <laughs> you tell me. All right, someone else, yeah. So, the so, question is, uh, like, for example, like, in, I think somewhere in the Quran says you can seek uh, knowledge and you can go to China. Is that not in the Quran, actually, not even in the Hadith. It's attributed to the Prophet them, but it's either, I can't remember if it's either extremely weak or fabricated, but nonetheless, go ahead. No, 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 I, I thought that was true. So, yeah. I was thinking about like, the Urd people now. Like, the which people? The Urd people. The Urd people. Well, you know, if you ask the Uyghurs, they're not going to tell you that they're in China. All the brothers that we met in Cairo, they say we're in East, I think they used to say East Turkmenistan or East Turkestan, I can't remember. Anyone know? Which one? Turkestan? Turkmenistan. Turkmenistan Sharqiya. Yeah, I think that's what they used to say. So they wouldn't say they're from China in the first place. But then, they're a different ethnicity than the ethnically Chinese Muslims. Right? That's a whole different category. Inshallah, there will be Muslims there. Muslims have been there since the time of the Sahaba, by the way. From the time of the Sahaba, Muslims were in China. So it's like a really old community. And really amazing things. You should, Dr. Omar wrote a paper on that that's really beautiful. It's called Seek Knowledge in China. <laughs> Seek Knowledge in China. If you look it up, Seek Knowledge in China PDF, you'll find his paper on it. It's a really amazing paper. Anyone else? Yes. Yeah. So, I wonder how we can understand it. I should have looked at the commentary, but I didn't. But, so what happened? The Prophet's sick. He wakes up. He asks, is it the time of prayer? Aisha says, yes. He says, okay, have Bilal call prayer and have Abu Bakr lead the prayer. Then he passes out. Then he wakes up again. He says, is the time for prayer come? She says, yes. He says, have Bilal call the prayer? Have Abu Bakr lead the prayer. She says, my father, Abu Bakr, is, he, you know, he's very sensitive. If he leads prayer, he's going to be crying a lot. He won't be able to finish, so on and so forth. And, um, and maybe you can appoint someone else. So he passes out again. He wakes up the third time. He says, Have Bilal call the prayer. Have Abu Bakr lead the prayer. And you women are like the women of Yusuf. Allah alam what he means from it. But the women, there was a group of women in the time of Yusuf who gave him a hard time. 
essentially. So maybe he's saying like, I've said this a couple of times, like you're giving me a hard time about it now. Just, Abu Bakr should lead the prayer. Bilal should call the prayer. It doesn't necessarily have to be like, so far, you know, that she's, because those women weren't necessarily the greatest women. But in some actually narrations they were. But anyways, that's a whole different. But I think he's, what I would understand from it is that he's just telling her like, look, don't give me a hard time. Abu Bakr leads prayer and uh, Bilal should call the prayer. Anyone else? MashaAllah. Beautiful moon. We're out of Rabi al Awwal. It's waxing into Rabi al Thani. So, Alhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen. InshaAllah, we will have next week the conversation with Zainab. I think it will be really beneficial. Alhamdulillah, you know, like. Uh, uh,